Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. God's good. Guys, we just jumped into a new teaching series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the church that he planted in the first century. And uh, it was a letter written to bring correction to the body of Christ in Corinth. Uh, there, were very, there were very specific issues that Paul begins to address in this letter. And our plan is to walk through this book and walk through this letter um, to answer the question of what does it mean to look like a Christian? I believe that's one of the things that Paul really outlines in the text, in this letter to the Corinthian church, is what does it mean to live like a Christian? Um, Because uh, I want to remind you that the first century church in Corinth was a church that was uh, very much uh, a church filled with first-generation Christians. Christianity was a new religion at the time. There wasn't a lot of, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of history to back up uh, what God was doing there in the sense that there wasn't a plethora of mature believers. Um, can I just switch microphones, Adam? Is that, is that cool? Because I'm distracted. <laughs> is that better? Okay, thank you guys. Distracting, reset, here we go. <laughs> but I, I want to remind you that the, the Corinthian church was a relatively new congregation. There wasn't a lot of history there. There wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't have people that had grown up following Jesus their entire lives to mentor younger believers. This was a congregation made up entirely of new believers figuring out what it meant to live like a Christian. And so Paul writes this letter. He has to bring correction. There's some things that he expects them to have a firm grasp on that they don't. And it comes from the heart of a pastor to the church that he planted in really wanting them to live and look like Christ. And so it was evident that God was moving in the church in Corinth, but people are messy, right? People have baggage. There's problems. And Paul writes this letter with this, this, this kind of bleeding heart of wanting the Corinthian church to look and live like Jesus. And in order for that to happen, there has to be some correction. And so I want to give you a quick little like tidbit or a note on correction because as we walk through these passages of scriptures, we walk through this book, you're going to notice that Paul does a lot of correcting this first century church. And in the same light, I believe as we see the correction that he brings to these new believers, this first century church, uh, it's also going to bring correction to us personally. And I want to make sure that we give room to the Holy Spirit to correct us in the areas that we need correcting. It's something that we should all desire. Amen? Um, but few of us actually do. How many of you guys like going to the doctor? Is there anybody here that just like loves going to the doctor? I, I, I know we don't. Um, 
I, I don't know, I have this kind of weird thing where I don't want to go to the doctor because I'm worried that they're going to tell me all the things that are wrong, <laughs> right? I'm going to go to the doctor and they're going to be like, well, you need to diet and you need to exercise more and you probably could lose 20 pounds if you want to be healthy, all these different things. Um, or, or even subconsciously, I think I have this like deep set fear that they're going to find something that's really wrong with me. And I just don't want to know about it because if I don't know about it, I don't have to think about it. But that's like silly thinking, right? Maybe I should go get a checkup or something like that. Uh, because if there is something really disastrously wrong, if there's something that is really unhealthy and needs to be changed, we want to know about it. We should want to know about it because that's the only way that we deal with it. And I think a lot of us, our default is just to pretend like nothing's wrong. How many of you guys have ever had that check engine light come on your car and you just maybe like put a piece of tape over it? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> if the light goes out, you're like, oh, the light must have burned out finally or something from being on too long. Um, all of those things, they're, they're indicators, they're signs that something needs attention. And I know that a lot of us probably know those people that just know everything and they're never wrong. And can I tell you, please don't be that person. I, I want to submit to you here before everybody that there isn't a single person in this room that has matured. There isn't a single person in this room that has lit, reached the level of perfect Christian, though some of you guys act like it. None of you have kind of arrived at the place where you have it figured out. And I know I certainly, ha I, I certainly have not. I haven't arrived there. You guys get what I'm trying to say. And I'm never going to. Um, it's important that we keep a spirit of humility about ourselves. It's important that we, we, we understand that there are going to be things that need to be corrected. There are going to be things that need to be addressed. And we need to have a willing and a receptive heart um, to let the Holy Spirit bring correction to those areas. This is why there are pastors. This is why there are teachers. This is why there is the Word of God. It's useful for bringing correction. And I just don't want anyone here, myself especially, to fall into the mentality that I am above rebuke or I'm above being corrected because Jesus says that he'll rebuke those that he loves. It's the same kind of mentality that I have with my kids. I don't correct them because I don't want them to have no fun, right? Like I don't tell them that they can't go play in the street or they can't like run around with a, like a flamethrower or something like that because I'm just a kind of a bum dad that doesn't want my kids to experience life. I, I, I bring correction and I, I have these teaching moments and I place restriction and restraint upon them because I care about them, because I love them, because I care about their health and their well-being. And I want them to live in the same way when God brings correction to our lives. When the Holy Spirit begins to convict and he begins to direct us, it's because he wants what's best for us. Does that make sense? And so as we tackle some of these harder subjects, as we hear things maybe that we don't want to hear, let's be receptive to the Lord. Let's be receptive to the Holy Spirit in order that we might bring about change. Amen? Amen. I wanted to read James 4, 6 to you just with this kind of mentality. 
James would write this, that he gives more grace, and therefore he says he resists the proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I, I, I just want us to have a spirit of humility to say that we don't know everything. We don't have it all figured out. I am not the end-all answer for all theological questions. And uh, understand that you aren't either. <laughs> Let's submit ourselves to the Lord. Let's submit ourselves to the word of God, to sound doctrine and teaching in order that we might look and live more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay. So with that in mind, I think it's important to remember that the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians are actually ancient letters. And they had a very intended audience, an intended recipient being the church in ancient Corinth. And so I think it's helpful when we're reading this letter to understand that Paul was not writing 1st Corinthians to modern America. I know that sometimes we read the scriptures that way because our, our kind of just our reasoning and our line of thinking uh, automatically assumes everything is about us. Um, but that's not the author's initial intent. Paul is actually addressing real issues to real people in history. I think that's uh, fascinating. And he didn't set out to write this system, like this systematic theology and this kind of all-encompassing kind of document about everything that Paul believes to be true. He's writing a letter. He's addressing particular issues. There are things written in this letter that are confusing, namely because we're not the original audience. We're not first century Corinthians. And so there are, there are pieces of information that we can only begin to speculate on. There are some things that are difficult for us to grasp and understand. Um, in fact, a good portion of this letter um, is actually written as a response to questions that the Corinthian church asked that we don't have access to. We can kind of fill in the gaps and, and through, through good study, we can kind of figure out the questions that they were asking. But I think it's helpful for us to understand because there are some difficult things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that have divided the church historically, that have brought great points of confusion or derision. And I just want us to be, I want us to be sober-minded as we approach this text to understand that we don't have all of the answers. We don't have everything figured out, and that's okay because it's still the Word of God. It's still relevant and applicable to us today. It's still something that we need to study and we hold in high regard. But I want, I, want, I want you to be in good company. If you come across something or there's something that I say or as we're studying and reading this book, it, it becomes a little confusing. You're in good company because it has puzzled people for a long time. And we're going to do our best to work through this and make the main points the main points and focus in on Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so um, we, we recognize it as the word of God. It's not any less valuable because it's confusing or there are things maybe that we don't understand because of the cultural context. It is still very much uh, relevant to us today. But it requires us to approach it intentionally, not haphazardly. And so there, with that in mind, there's two words I'm going to give to you. They're big words. 
and I'm, I'm thankful that we have a family Sunday today so I can use these giant words uh, <laughs> um, that may sound intimidating at first, but I'm going to break them down so they're super simple. They're words that uh, they kind of drilled into us in seminary. You're probably familiar with them. They're called exegesis and hermeneutics. If you need to learn how to spell that, ask Adam. He could probably put it on the word. Every time I tried to write hermeneutics into my sermon today, I had to spell check it and like right click and correct the spelling because uh, I have spo- spelled hermeneutics wrong this entire, evidently my entire life. And so I found out today that I was misspelling it. But these are kind of fancy words, right, that they teach us in seminary. But every Christian... Every person that has ever read the scripture practices these two things. You may not know this. You'd be like, I'm no theologian. I'm no scholar. I want you to know this, is that you practice exegesis and hermeneutics every single time you read the scriptures. Um, and it's something uh, that I, I desire for us to, to really grasp and understand. Um, the, the difference between most people is some people do it well, and some people do a very poor job of uh, practicing good exegesis and hermeneutics. And so let me give you the definition of what these things are so you can track with me here. So exegesis is the process of interpreting what was said when the text was written and the intent of the original author. So to practice exegesis in something like 1 Corinthians would be understanding that this was written to the Corinthian church, and we want to understand what Paul was trying to say to the Corinthian church then and there. And the practice of hermeneutics builds off of good exegesis, and it applies that interpretation to our current context. It really bridges that gap of what did the author mean but what does it mean for me now? And I think a lot of people like to start with the place of looking at a text and saying, what does the scripture mean to me? And what does it mean for me without first doing good exegesis in figuring out what the author was trying to say initially? You cannot have good hermeneutics without good exegesis. You can't just take the scriptures and pick and choose and apply them to your life without first having a good understanding of what the author's initial, original intent was. Otherwise, you begin to twist scripture. Otherwise, you begin to pull things out that weren't ever actually there. And it doesn't mean that God can't speak to you. It doesn't mean that that God can't reveal things to you. But it does make us kind of poor, poor stewards of the gift of the word of God if we begin to just kind of pick and choose and apply things to our life. And so um, Dr. Gordon Fee, he's this kind of brilliant scholar. He was on the board of uh, kind of, uh, he's one of the lead translators for the Greek part of the NIV Bible. Um, He's a a seminary professor, a theologian. Uh, He wrote some amazing commentary on 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In fact, he was one of the leading voices when I was pursuing my ordination that taught a class on 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And I love the way that he kind of phrased exegesis and hermeneutics that have really helped me. And so this is kind of the simple, like the, the, the simple version that will help us from here on out. Exegesis has to do with the then and there. 
and hermeneutics brings that to the here and now. Does that, does that make sense? So exegesis has to do with the then and there, and hermeneutics has to do with bringing it to the here and now. And I'm making a big deal about this, and I'm saying this because we're going to revisit these definitions as we come to different passages because it's important for us to have this in mind as we study the scripture because there are difficult things that Paul says in First and Second Corinthians that really impact us today. And so, um, because if we don't understand what it meant to the Corinthians and the church in Corinth, we're far more likely not to understand its relevancy for us today, what it actually means, right? We've got guys in here with long hair, right, Lucas? Man, you've got long hair. No, oh, you want to swap? When I first moved here, I had long hair too, and then it stopped growing. Uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul makes statements in 1 Corinthians about how it's shameful for a guy to have long hair. There are plenty of women in here today. Uh, actually, I think almost everybody, I'm doing a cursory glance, uh, almost everybody, uh, that are not wearing head coverings in the church. And Paul makes some statements here about these things. And, and for us to understand what was culturally relevant to them, uh, for us to understand uh, why Paul says some of the things that he says, um, we, we have to ask these difficult questions because we understand this to be the word of God. We understand this to be active and relevant, and we understand it's not just something we can pick and choose. You know what? We like what Paul says about sanctification, and we like what Paul says about the message of the cross, but we don't like what he, sa what he says about women in ministry, and we develop this theology that's all whacked out. If we don't understand the context and the reason and, and, and the kind of the reasoning for the, why Paul says the things that he does in a particular context, we can have a and a messed up theology that's not on course. And our, our desire here, at least in Open Door Church, is to handle the word of God carefully, with diligence, making sure that what we're practicing and what we're saying and what we're teaching is in line with Scripture. And that's where good exegesis and good hermeneutics is going to help us as we read these things, because there are some things that are cultural. There are some things that are directly applicable to us today. And for us to understand how that all fits in and what the point of it all, why it's canonized in scripture is important for us. Does that make sense? Yeah. You guys tracking with me? So I'm giving you those definitions because for, for some of these things that are more difficult to understand, more difficult for us to track with, we're going to need that foundation. And so last week, we introduced kind of the major theme of this letter being one of unity, at least the first major theme in 1 Corinthians. And it's this idea, we see this conflict that has risen up within the Corinthian church where some are saying, well, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and even some are saying, uh, I'm of Christ, practicing this kind of spiritual elitism, if you will. And they've, they've developed factions and different parties within the church where the church is divided, right? That's what Paul said last week, is Christ divided? And we understand that's not the case, but Paul is responding to this issue of disunity in the congregation of Corinth, and he lets out on this kind of elaborate teaching, if you will. And he, he says a lot of things in the course of four chapters 
that uh, really deals with this theme of unity in the body of Christ. And so as we kind of continue to work our way through this, I just want you to be reminded that this is the backdrop for the things that we're talking about, is that there is a church that is disrupted um, by division that Paul, as the pastor who planted this church, his heart is breaking and wanting to see the church united, saying the same thing, united in body, united in mind, united in spirit is what uh, we would see. And so I, I just want to quickly highlight this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. So this is the end of chapter 3, and it actually goes on and picks up even in chapter 4, where Paul says this, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or of death or of things present or things to come, all are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. And you'd be like, what does that mean? Uh, we're going to get to that. But I want to point this out. This, this is multiple pages in the Bible later. This is multiple chapters later that Paul is still carrying on this thought of Apollos, of Cephas, of, uh, of himself, of these different factions, these different parties. And so that's the kind of underlying current in which we're going to be talking about the message of the cross what we're going to be talking about today. That's, that's the backdrop. And so as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to pick up with where we left off. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, and primarily 18 today. And it's not going to be very long, but I want to read this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. I want you to understand this. It is possible to preach the genuine gospel. It is possible to preach the cross and have it not be powerful. What in the world, Nate? That sounds crazy. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't add up. But this happens when we attempt to supplement and amend the message of the cross with carnal things. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for creativity. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for, for parables. Jesus even used them. But we have to keep Jesus Christ the main thing and let Scripture speak for itself. The Word of God is powerful enough. It doesn't need our emotional spin or kind of this carnal way of thinking in order to present it to be powerful. But Paul is saying here that when we, when we tempt to kind of bedazzle the message of the cross, um, that it can be made of no effect. That's crazy. I, I don't know. I, I watch a lot of YouTube preachers. Um, I've been watching different things. People send me stuff all the time, uh, like uh, of different, different like weird stuff all, the, all out there on the internet. I've been watching this church that does these crazy renditions of plays for like their Easter program. And they've got, like, the Avengers, and instead of Jesus being crucified, it's Iron Man, like, being crucified. It's 100% it's, it's blasphemous, guys. And they're trying to put a spiritual spin on it to reach the world. And I'll be, I'll be very honest with you. I don't like degrading other ministries or anything like that. But that moves into the place of just not even foolishness. We're going to talk about foolishness. That's just stupid. Am I allowed to say that? I know it's Family Sunday. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that. Um, but... It, it, it gets to the place 
where the gospel is not being preached and it's being robbed of its power. It's being made of no effect. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not need our help. I'm not saying we can't be creative with it. God can certainly present it in creative means. But the important thing is that the gospel is being preached, not in the not how impressive it is when we preach it. Because I listen to a lot of Bible teachers. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I know many of you guys probably listen to podcasts and Bible teachers. I'm always amazed at some of my favorite teachers, how clearly they can communicate, how powerfully they can illustrate a point. And I sit back and I'm like, man, why does anybody ever listen to me when they can get on iTunes or Spotify? And there's like 5 million different pastors that are just way better at explaining this exact same thing. And they're engaging and they're exciting. It's like, man, that's who I would be listening to. There are, there are pastors out there that aspire me and blow my mind. And I've noticed something over the years, though. And uh, hopefully, I'd like to kind of think of this as some sort of sign of maturity that I'm, I'm, I'm slowly but surely, slowly, slowly, words are hard, slowly but surely maturing in my faith. Um, but there are things when it comes to to messages and pastors and preachers that don't impress me like they used to. Um, the, the theatrics and the, and the personalities and the emotional spin that I, I often hear in certain styles of preaching have left a sour taste in my mouth. And it's left me in a place where I think a lot of people are, where they're just hungry for the word of God. They're hungry for the scriptures. They're hungry for the truth. They don't need to know about the funny joke or the crazy personal story of how you intertwine it and it makes so much sense. Some of those things are great. I'm not deriding all that. I share stories. I I try to be engaging with the way that I communicate. But at the end of the day, I want to hear what Jesus has to say. And I think it's important that we don't try to convolute things with our kind of personality, if that makes sense. I was uh, watching this kind of clip on Facebook that was shared of this pastor and his, his sermon. Um, and I, I was really saddened because I read all these comments of people and I had people that were sharing it and they were reading these comments. I went through, these comments were talking about how God spoke to them through this. And it was this, uh, they, they had this mighty encounter with Jesus through this, kind of sermon that was shared, and I wound up being intrigued. I was like, oh, man, I want to listen to this. I want to hear what's going on. I want to be, I want, I want God to speak to me. And I, I listened to this pastor as he shared this story that was 100% fabricated. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even like trying to present itself as something that was real. There was no mention of Jesus. There was no mention of his sacrifice or death on the cross. And this entire sermon goes through and Scripture, not, not only is it quoted or not quoted or mentioned, it's not even referenced to. Sometimes I listen to preachers and they may not quote a Bible verse or something like that, but you can at least, if you're familiar with the scriptures, see where they got what they came from. And it was really just this sad kind of emotionally stirring story. And I had to, I had to weep before the Lord because it, it really made me grieve as a pastor that here, here was this minister. There were, there were people that I knew, acquaintances online, that were really moved by this man and his story. 
And I'm not saying that God can't move through those things, but there was no, there was no substance to it. There was no mention of the cross of Christ. There was no mention of the scriptures. And I, I, I fear, friends, that we need to do a better job of who we put up on a pedestal and who we, who we prioritize as teachers and as preachers of the word of God because there are people that are really good at generating emotion. There are people that are really good about getting you to respond in an emotional way and stirring up thoughts and, and kind of getting you to a certain place. And, and they know how to work a crowd, if you will. And I, I, I just, I want to caution you. I want to caution myself. I, I've probably been guilty of this same thing before. Let's prioritize the word and the message of the cross above anything else. Can we do that, friends? We need to make sure that the people that we're listening to, the teachers that we're entertaining, are actually preaching the word, not their own agenda, not something that just sounds good. But we need to put them to the test. This is what Paul would charge Timothy in 2 Timothy verses four, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This was kind of his protege, if you will. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. It's not preach the emotion, not, not, not preach what the kind of current cultural problem, but preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. This was written to a, a young Timothy. To preach the word. To be on guard. You shouldn't be shocked that people are listening to all sorts of nonsense, right? There's all these different kind of theological camps that exist out there that really have no foundation or root in the scriptures. This is part of the reason why we really have desired to turn Wednesday night into a service where we're practicing the spiritual gifts, where we're praying for one another, but it's all rooted and connected in the word of God. Because there, it's so easy to, to kind of get off on an emotional tangent. It's so easy to get wrapped up in something that is not Jesus and that is not the cross. Because our emotions do run wild. And it's important, friends, that we're rooted and we stay firmly planted in the word of God. Because Hebrews would tell us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Can I tell you as a preacher... As someone that has to try to come up with a message every week. This is a huge relief to me because uh, I'm constantly fighting this desire and, and fighting this, this kind of mentality that I need to come up with something fresh and something new and give, a, give, give my own personal spin on something week after week after week after week because I have to keep people engaged. I have to keep people sitting at their seats wondering what he's going to say. You have to hear something new from me that you can't find on YouTube. 
YouTube or, or at the latest church podcast. You have to come for something original. And guess what? God never called me to be original. He called me to be faithful with his word and faithful to preach the cross. And for me, friends, that's a huge relief because I don't have to spend all my nights laying up at night wondering how am I going to top last week? How am I going to top last month? How am I going to top that sermon series and give them something, man, that they're just excited to hear and they're going to latch onto that's really going to change them? Pastor Adam and I were sitting down kind of, kind of, kind of praying and plotting out where we were going to go with our next teaching series. And we're like, man, can we just teach the Bible like, is, are we not allowed to do that? Like, is, is there something taboo about that? Could we, man, could we just, like, pick a book of the Bible and pray about it and see, see where God would direct us? And he, he led us to 1 Corinthians. And can I tell you, there's something exciting about just knowing, man, we're going to be in the Bible. We're going to talk about Jesus and the cross. And I don't have to worry if it's, like, this fresh revelation. And, and God obviously speaks and he gives insight, and I'm thankful for that. But it's something that us as charismatics, us as Pentecostals are really bad at sometimes. We're always chasing the greatest revelation, the newest word, the freshest, we used to call them revelation nuggets. Did anybody ever use that language? I, I don't know where that came from. It's kind of like a chicken nugget. Guys, I ate my first <laughs> chicken nugget. I don't know. It, it, I guess it might have been about two years ago. It was on a Thursday night. We were playing games, and I had never had a McDonald's chicken nugget. My kids had eaten them, all that. I don't know, but I had never, I've never eaten one because I was like, where do you find the nugget on a chicken, right? That sounds weird. I'm not going to eat that. Um, and then I finally, finally had a chicken nugget the other day, and I don't know why I'm telling you this story, but now my son and I are addicted to McDonald's chicken nuggets, and I need deliverance so somebody can pray for me. That was the whole point of this story. The other day, we were just sitting around, and we're like, man, I could make lunch, but you know what would sound really good right now? We could go get a 20-piece McNugget, and it was great. Man, it's bad. They make them in a spicy one now. It's really good. Oh, Jesus, help me. Revelation nuggets, that's what I was talking about. But we, we, we kind of chase down these streams where we want something fresh. We want to hear something new. We want to find a teacher that will say something different than what it actually says because then somehow it makes us feel more spiritual, more enlightened, more in tune because we had this encounter and we heard something different. And in reality, I'm not saying that God can't ever speak like that. I'm not saying God can't ever reveal himself in those ways. But for most people, we're unwilling to embrace the simple, on-your-face, plain meaning of a text. And we would rather trade in just something plain and on the nose that God would ask us to do and kind of chase down these rabbit holes of these deep, hidden meanings and these deep kind of obscure thoughts and these hidden treasures and try to dig out these, these, these nuggets, if you will. Because we want something to be more difficult and more complicated because then it feels like we have some kind of insider knowledge and we're more spiritual than someone else. But can I tell you, you can stop trying to figure out what Jesus meant secretly when he said, deny yourself to take up your cross and follow me. Can I give you a revelation nugget, if you will? He meant to deny yourself, to live selflessly, and to follow Jesus, and that it was going to be difficult, and that you would have to die to yourself daily. 
There isn't a hidden meaning to that. And I, I just get frustrated in the sense that we're always looking for something deeper or something more. And I would tell you and I would submit to you this morning that the cross of Christ, that the message of the cross is enough. So Paul says here that the gospel, which I guess I keep saying the message of the cross, we're getting to that. He'll, he'll define the gospel as the message of the cross. It doesn't need our help. It doesn't need our talent or our ability to make it powerful. You should be jumping and shouting and be so excited about this right now. How many of you guys aren't like stoked on public speaking? Only one person, two people, like three people, four people. Okay, man, you guys can come up here and preach next week. I would love that. Everybody that didn't raise their hand, I would love to just sit there and glean from you, all you people that are just like, man, I love public speaking. I make up words. This is like literally the, this is one of my, anyway, I'm not going to go down that road. For all of you that did raise your hands, you should be stoked about this because the message of the cross doesn't need your help. It doesn't need you to be a good public speaker. It doesn't need you to be uh, a, uh, this great theologian. It doesn't need you to go to seminary in order to preach it. It doesn't require wise or persuasive words. It doesn't require elegance here. It just requires that you actually do it. Because the power and the potency of the cross is in the cross itself. It's in the delivery of the message. It's not in the deliverer. So stop making excuses on why God can't use you because maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm just not outgoing. That's just not my personality. I just, God didn't make me that way. Guess what? <laughs> you don't need to be articulate. Man, God has used me more on a ski lift than he probably has in a pulpit. And it, I've never probably said something super theologically advanced on the ski lift. <laughs> Never had, I never got the opportunity to use the words exegesis and hermeneutics on the ski lift. But the message of the cross can get preached. And I would just encourage you guys, uh, don't sell yourself short. Does that make sense? We're going to keep reading here. Because the power isn't in your ability to present it with wise and persuasive words, but in your faithfulness to simply present it. I'd encourage you guys with that. But this is where Paul begins to define this kind of the gospel message. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who of us, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I need you to notice here there is a division that is taking place in these verses. It divides all of humanity into two groups of people. And I know we don't like to, to segregate. We don't like to separate or those things in our culture. It's not culturally taboo. But the word of God does it. He divides it into two groups. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And this is a grim reality that we should, that should really shake us. It should alert us to the reality of the fact that there are people that are being saved and then there are people who are not. Scripture doesn't give us a middle ground for some people to fall into. It's this active thing that is taking place. The distinction between the two is found in their response to the message of the cross. 
This is what Paul would refer to as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God himself, who was without sin, the spotless lamb who would willingly take our place and die for our sin. He would rise again triumphant over death, all so that we could be with him. It was a scandalous thing, and it was a foolish thing. And so today, I would like to submit to you that you are either being saved by the message of the cross and the power of God, or you are actively perishing. It's one or the other. It's not both. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. The cross has made a dividing point in humanity where we are either being actively saved or we're actively perishing in our response to it. But there is good news because the cross has made a way to God. And Paul would go on to write that it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thank you, Lord. Everybody track with that? Everybody got that? You guys have it figured out? Great. We're going to talk more about wisdom and foolishness next week, and we're going to really dig into it, but I, I want to kind of highlight here in verse 23 where we read, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Something that I think is helpful for you to understand was in first century Corinth, it was kind of a, a cultural melting pot of philosophy. Uh, Roman and Greek philosophy was very much uh, kind of on the rise and on the forefront of everything that was happening there in Corinth. There were different uh, kind of cults, Roman cults that were being established. Uh, Greek philosophy was kind of the, the mantra of the day. And they, they had this something that they prided themselves in. They would call it Sophia. And it was this, it was wisdom. It was their word for wisdom. And it was kind of the, the, the ultimate point of enlightenment. And it was something that they were, they were seeking after. And it was this mentality that man could grow so enlightened, that man could grow so, uh, so wise or so smart, if you will, that they could kind of attain to a place of peace. It's not something that's too far off from different, uh, different cultures and different religions today. But that's kind of the backdrop of what Paul is writing here because the Greeks were, were impressed with wisdom. They were impressed with philosophy. They were impressed with reason and with logic. And can I tell you, there is nothing logical about a God that would die for you. There is nothing, there's nothing impressive about that. The Jews on the other side, uh, on, the other, on the other side of that equation, they were looking for a messianic warrior. 
when they were thinking of the Christ, when they were thinking of the Messiah, they were looking at someone that was going to come in and set them free from Roman oppression and Roman rule. He would be all-powerful. He would be almighty. He would be the deliverer, the one that would set them free and lead them into victorious battle. And so when we have these ideas of, 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 of Christ that are not God's ideas, we're left with this disappointment and God actually gives us something completely contrary to either one of those things. He gives us Christ crucified. I want you to think about this. This was the Messiah, the very definition of power, right? This is, this is God himself, the one that was supposed to lead them into victory. This is, this is kind of the very picture of a triumphant king. And we marry that with crucifixion. Right? The epitome of humiliation, of defeat, of weakness. You see, I think sometimes we have this idea of like maybe death on a cross being a regal thing. It might be, it, it, there's some kind of uh, notoriety with it or, or there's, some kind of, uh, there's some kind of glamour, if you will, because maybe we associate the cross with Jesus. But here in first century Corinth and, and to these new believers and to the, the Greek and the Roman world and, and to the Jews, the idea of death by crucifixion was a scandalous thing. There's no way that God could come in that way. And so we've got this picture of power and this picture of crucifixion, of ultimate shame, of defeat, of weakness. And on the surface level, it's the greatest oxymoron in all of human history. How can you have Christ crucified? That's what Paul would refer to as foolishness. That's the foolishness that is demonstrated here. Because from a carnal way of thinking, it makes no sense. And it appeases no crowd. You see, the message of Jesus and the message of the cross doesn't conform to culture's demands. The Jews wanted a Christ that would deliver them from their political oppressors and overthrow Roman rule. And the Greeks wanted to follow someone who would appear to human reason and logic. And Jesus is neither one of those things. In the same way that the message of the cross today can't bow to the culture's demand. We, we want to preach an all-loving, all-inclusive God that does not have any ounce of judgment because that's taboo in our culture. But that's not the full gospel. That's not the message of the cross. And, and, and we have to be firm in understanding that the cross is offensive. And not everybody's going to embrace it. We have to understand that the cross and the message of the cross doesn't make logical sense. Paul is asking us to move past that place. It's not... It's not necessarily a carnally logical decision to say yes to Jesus. It doesn't make sense for us to lose our life so that we could find it. It doesn't make sense for us to give things away so that we could have. It doesn't make sense for us to spend our lives serving others, at least from a carnal perspective. But God turns the wisdom of this world up on its head. Preach Christ crucified. 
stole this from David Guzik, who's a pastor of Calvary Chapel, but he says this, every church ought to hold to this truth of Christ crucified, but too often churches begin to ax away at the statement, and it soon becomes we preach Christ, not Christ crucified, but Jesus the great man, or Jesus the moral example. Eventually, we wind up with just we preach. We preach whatever we want, and we're left with just the we, a mere social gathering lacking any of the power or the message of the cross. I want to remind you, friends, we can never graduate from this message. We don't move past the message of the cross. There isn't something that we get to where we elevate it and somehow we, we reach spirituality 2.0. The message of the cross will and has to remain the central message for the church. So with that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. Something Jesus would institute with his disciples. And he'd give us instruction as often as we were to take of this cup and take of this bread. That we would do so in remembrance of him proclaiming his death until he comes. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.